Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored at Billy Tallheimer, co-founder and CEO of Regent. On today's episode, we discuss Regent's all-electric sea gliders and its impact on tourism. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Billy. Thanks, Grayson. Super excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you here because the future of aviation is sustainable. Can't say it any other way. The future of aviation is sustainable. And what you're working on at Regent is sustainable. You're developing an all-electric sea glider, and I'm going back in the history of sea gliders. I'm like, oh, maybe it's inspired by Howard Hughes' H4 Hercules, commonly known as the Spruce Goose. Was the Spruce Goose the inspiration for Regent? Uh, so it was not. And actually, you know, as we think about sea gliders, there have been craft that have sort of glided over the sea in one way or another. But really what, what we're building at Regent, this sea glider, is a new vehicle, a completely new mode of transportation in and of itself. So we, we look back and there have been wing and ground effect vehicles, which are things that sort of look like airplanes. They fly low over the water on this cushion of air, like a pelican flies on and they get aerodynamic efficiencies. So that was really the inspiration of this, these wing and ground effects or WIG wig vehicles. So that the Spruce Goose was meant to be a, a seaplane and actually only stayed in ground effects. So the Spruce Goose was almost an unintentional wig vehicle. Um, but we really said there is this uh, really promising ability to create wigs and wigs have these benefits of, of having these aerodynamic efficiencies so that we can get longer range, which is super critical when we talk about battery technology is getting long range. And then we said, how can we how can we modernize this and how can we address some of the problems with past wigs? And that's really where sea gliders came from. Sea gliders are hydrofoiling, wave tolerant, electric wigs. Fascinating. You mentioned length. Spruce Goose was designed, never made it, I repeat, never made it for, for transatlantic travel. Yes. You mentioned range. What is the range of the region that you're developing for? Yeah, so sea gliders are all electric vehicles. We have a range of 180 miles, in at, uh, 180 miles at 180 miles an hour. Uh, and that's actually a, a really critical range because that lets us do a lot of key regional routes today as we think about uh, island chains like in Hawaii, as we think about Miami to the Bahamas, as we think about routes in the Mediterranean or crossing the English Channel. We can address all of those routes with 180 mile range and 180 miles is something actually we can do with batteries today. So we're not waiting on any new battery technology and at end of life of the batteries. So you can actually repeatedly address these routes. Even as the batteries ages, we can still go 180 miles. The Miami of the Bahamas is a good route. So you can go to the Exumas, you can go to the Andros, you can even go to Harbor Island. So I'm going to throw some economics in here. Let's do it. You're going to fly private out of Miami to the Bahamas. For a seaplane, it's average $14,000 now because you cannot fly direct because a lot of the, as the Bahamas tourism industry calls, the out islands. So are you looking to undercut that traditional charter business and allow those residents to go to those out islands while boosting the bohemian tourism industry? Absolutely. That, that's one of the key models of us. Now, importantly, Regent is an OEM. So we're, we're sort of the Boeing of sea gliders here, right? We, we build sea gliders. We provide aftermarket maintenance services for sea gliders. We participate in the training of sea glider captains and crews, uh, but we do not operate directly. Our customers do. Our key customers are airlines and ferry companies. Uh, so sea gliders have 
a per hour operating cost, even when you include everything in there, when you include depreciation of the vehicle and the electricity and the battery replacement and the docks and the crew, put it all together on the order of $750 an hour. So you could charter an entire sea glider, 12 seats, 750 bucks an hour. Now you can talk about what sort of margin does the operator put on there, but let's say they put a 33% margin on there. So now that's $1,000 to charter a sea glider. That's a 14th of what the seaplanes are going for today. So that is exactly the opportunity that Regent Sea Gliders give to our customers, the operators. We're not looking to undercut it, we're looking to give them a new tool that they can employ. So it might be a seaplane operator that buys sea gliders and operates them, not only lowers their, their costs significantly, uh, but also completely eliminates their emissions with an all electric vehicle. It's a game changer. If you look at services like Blade or JetX, they're, they're, they're pulling individuals together for that, that semi-private transportation, but they also offer the private transportation. If you we'll go, Let's go to the Hawaiian Islands for a moment. I flew in commercial into Maui, and I had to go on Mukulele Airlines, and I had to wait and wait and wait, and it wasn't a very sustainable way. So will I be able to go from Maui to, say, Lanai or to Kauai? on a sustainable emissions-free trip? Are those t- another example of routes that you're looking at? That is absolutely another example of routes. And actually, you mentioned Mokulele. We are super excited because Mokulele has firm non-refundable deposits down on sea gliders. So they are waiting in line as the first operator of sea gliders, rather the parent company, which is Southern Airways Express, but Mokulele is a subsidiary of Southern Airways Express. So they're standing in line as a potential first global market of sea glider operations. Uh, The parent company, Southern Airways Express, also operates on the east coast of the U.S. in places like uh, Miami and New York and Boston and things like that. Uh, Did I hear the right non-refundable deposit? You got it. We're actually one of the few companies in this uh, advanced air mobility space that has such rigor in our order book. So we have several customers with firm deposits down. And really, that sort of speaks to uh, how rigorous we are, not only with our engineering and our safety and our certification, but with our orders, and really speaks to our customers as well, that they have gone deep into diligence with us, deep into economic modeling, into a technical validation. We've shown them that this will work. And so they are bought on saying, you know, we're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to be the first or one of the first global adopters of sea gliders. That's a really positive thing for the industry. It's a positive thing for your company. You're not sitting here, oh, we got a deposit. Oh, by the way, there was no money down. And don't worry, you don't have to take the sea gliders at the end of the day. Mokulele, you mentioned it's a customer. Uh, there's an, a customer that operates in the, in the summer out of the Northeast. They operate in the Caribbean in the summer trade wind aviation. They fly PC-12s. And so they're going, I think the longest route they go is maybe an hour, 45 minutes, hour, 30. Are those routes or operators then also in the Northeast? You have Cape Air. That's another example of some of a potential operator of a sea glider. Absolutely. Those would be uh, potential operators for us. Actually, another one of our customers is Fly the Whale. So they do seaplanes and they do some contracting as well for Blade. So absolutely in that uh, New England market, uh, you think about routes like New York to the Hamptons, 110 miles or so. Uh, You think about Boston to the Massachusetts Islands. Uh, I I grew up in the Boston area. Our company was initially based in Boston before we recently moved to uh, Rhode Island and Narragansett Bay. But thinking about a direct Boston and Nantucket route, I mean, that's a home run right there. You know, so that's exactly where we're we're targeting and and working with our operators to show the use case. I'll hop on the flight and join you for some chowder. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) And then we could come home with our Nantucket rides and it was was a good trip. I love Nantucket. That's that's you know they say uh, build something you want to use. So that that's the first route I'm flying. 
Exactly. You're giving people and individuals a new way to get to the to the gray lady and experience the, the beauty of Nantucket. So you're working with, let's call them, say, regional operators, like with Mokalele. We, we mentioned the potential with, with Tradewind. And um, what then you got the large guys. You've got Hawaiian Airlines. That's a that's a big commercial airline. They're going to operate the sea gliders as well. How are they going to integrate the sea gliders into the the Hawaiian Airlines overall operations? Yeah, so Hawaiian Airlines joined us as a strategic investor, really seeing the the promise that sustainable inter-island transportation represents to the state of Hawaii. Hawaiian Airlines has 90% of the inter-island traffic right now, but clearly they're doing so at scale with larger aircraft. And so really what we've started doing with Hawaiian is, is diving deep into this. How would this work at scale? As Regent is building multiple sea glider vehicles, our first called Viceroy is a 12-seat vehicle, and that's what uh, Mokulele has firm deposits on. And then as we get larger, we have our Monarch sea glider, a 100-seat vehicle. And so uh, Hawaiian is, is working with us to explore the opportunities for Monarch in the Hawaii ecosystem. We're joining them in a design partnership for Monarch so we can think through things like ingress and egress and accessibility and port use and wave tolerance and things like that. Uh, so we're certainly exploring that in the ecosystem. And so in some cases, to answer your question, uh, you know, in some cases, like in Honolulu, the airport is actually coastally proximal, right, or, or coastally adjacent, rather. And you could imagine just uh, just like you would connect from one terminal to another, you could connect from the airport side to the sea glider terminal, all on base, all in the airport. In some other ecosystems, for example, in Miami, we're coastally proximal but not adjacent. But it's only a 15-minute bus ride to connect Miami Airport to, say, Port Miami. So uh, we're working through models with several other operating uh, targets and, and partners about what would it look like to do these connections. You get off the plane, you get onto a bus, your luggage is moved right there. It's still a seamless transfer. 15 minutes later, you're at the dock, which is actually how long it takes to walk through the airport and find your next terminal anyways. You know, layovers are an hour and a half, right? So you could be on to the sea glider in 15 minutes and off you go on your way to Key West or the Bahamas. So we're actually working both models, both that that seamless direct model airport walk to the sea glider terminal and the coastal airport, but also a, a connection model through a bus or maybe someday in the future through an EV toll. The Miami airport, if you can get out of the Miami airport in 15 minutes, God bless. That place is big, especially <laughs> with the American Airlines terminal. It just seems, it's like a casino. You can never find your, your way exactly. out of there. <laughs> Port of Miami is, I think, it's the largest cruise ship destination in the United States. Will you co-locate in, in, in the cruise ship area of the port, or will you look to build new facilities? Because if you go out into the uh, the Bay of Biscayne, you've got a lot of very calm water. That's, I'm not a pilot, but it seems like you can have a pretty easy takeoff and landing there. Definitely an easy takeoff and landing. We're actually working in various contexts with the city to identify suitable land use for us at the port uh, in other places as well. What impact does it have on existing traffic, on the cruise lines, on the economic viability of the routes? You know, the cruise lines themselves are, are a great example of another potential customer. So, so far, we've really been talking about this uh, commercial transportation aspect. But you can also think about it from sort of a tourism aspect. You know, you, you go on your cruise ship, you go to your destination, you can do an offshore excursion. And right now on a boat, you know, your offshore excursion might be limited to how far you can get in a half hour boat ride, which is on the order of five, maybe 10 miles. And so now imagine if you could go to islands 180 miles away and it would take you an hour to get there. 
would really change the game in terms of what you can do at your destination with the cruise line. So we're starting to, to talk to some of these cruise lines as well about how can they use and how can they employ sea gliders. It goes to what Wall Street wants. Wall Street wants to see recurring revenue and the consumers, the travelers, they want experiences. It, it, it fits in there. They can just bundle it very simply as a service. Is another benefit of being in the port do the all the power that's down there? These cruise ships take a lot of power. So if you go to build out your charging infrastructure, you can tap into that substation with relative ease. Yes, I love that you said that because you know, coming from sort of an electric aviation, EV toll, air taxi background, you know, call it what you will, but how do we get these vertical takeoff and landing electric planes in the in the national airspace and near cities? It is always a fundamental problem of how do you get the charging there? How do you build this infrastructure and get the charging there? And as sort of our our founding team was largely aviation, and so as we started getting deeper and deeper into the maritime space as a boat company, I'll I'll be them flying boats, sea gliders, but uh, still vessels, as we started getting deeper in the maritime space, we realized like, hey, a lot of these docks are already electrified. You're the power that it takes to charge the cruise ships at night, this hotel power, they call it, for all the rooms and facilities and stuff, is on the order of 10 megawatts in some places. And that is that is a big power, and that is plenty to charge uh, you know, a fleet of sea gliders. Uh, and so in many cases, especially in Europe, especially in cruise-heavy cities, a lot of the infrastructure is already there for us. And all we have to do is you know, build the plug to plug into the sea gliders, but there's no new infrastructure development. That's the game changer. Let's say, for example, let's call Bahamas Air, and they're operating flights every hour on the hour to and from the Bahamas. When the flights come down today, traditional flight lands at MIA, they clean it, they refuel it, away it goes. What will that process look like? And will a charge time have an impact on how fast they can load the next one up and go? Yes. Yeah, so uh, you're correct in that the, the Sea Glider operating concept is charge rather than swapping batteries. However, fast charge today is actually pretty promising. So sort of the fastest you can charge a full battery today is on the order of, say, 45 minutes. If you charge any faster than that, you start to sort of eat into its life cycle, which which hurts your business viability and, and hurts the sustainability aspect because now you're throwing out batteries every month, right? So sort of say like 45 minutes or so is a full battery. That's our max range mission, 180 miles. So if we're flying Miami to Bahamas, that's uh, Miami to Nassau, for example, that's a 180 mile mission. So yeah, you'd get there, charge 45 minutes and send it back. Now, 45 minutes isn't so bad. It might take 15 minutes to unload the sea glider, 15 minutes to clean it and 15 minutes to get everyone else back on. So uh, that's not going to substantially adversely affect your business case. And then further, if the routes are shorter, let's say we're only going 90 miles, for example, some of the Hawaii routes are sort of averaging around 90 miles, that's only half a battery you discharge on your trip, which means it only takes you half the time. So now you're talking 20 to 25 minutes and you top off the battery with that half charge and that's even faster. So we made this conscious decision to make our architecture charge rather than swap. It makes the integration of the battery system sort of more stable, much more simple, because you don't need to think about, you know, how do you remove these battery systems? You can sort of just build them into the vehicle. And really, with today's fast charge technology, uh, it does not adversely affect the business case to have a charge time on the order of a half hour. Does a non-swappable battery make it easy to, easier to go through the FAA certification process? So that's actually another key distinguishing factor between a sea glider and a seaplane. 
So actually, at the international level, you have ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and the IMO, the International Maritime Organization. These are sort of UN-empowered bodies that make some international precedent rules. So they looked at WIGS, Wing and Ground Effect Vehicle, and said, these things are kind of between us. You know, how do we regulate them? Uh, and they came up with three types of WIG. So a Type A WIG is in ground effect at all times. So that means it's within a wingspan of the surface of the water, dock to dock, over water transportation only. Then they said Type B WIGs are allowed transient hops up to 500 feet or 150 meter altitude. Uh, and then they said Type C WIGs are prolonged flight outside of ground effect or flight above 500 feet. So they came up with type ABC. Now, interestingly, the IMO and ICAO drew the line between type B and type C, which means that both type A and type B are under IMO jurisdiction. They're under maritime jurisdiction certified as vessels. So we saw that international precedent. We took it back to the U.S., spoke with the FAA and the Coast Guard, and they said, you know what, this, this concept of boats flying at 500 feet is maybe a little iffy to us, but we can all get behind the concept of boats that are in a wingspan of the surface of the water because that's, that's lower than a sailboat mast, right? So you truly are a boat. You just happen to be a very fast boat. But operationally, uh, all of your navigation is maritime. You're not going in airports. You're not going in airspace. You're not deconflicting with air travel. Um, all of the knowledge that the operator needs to know is maritime. So actually, rather than the FAA, we're under maritime certification. We are a U.S. flagged vessel. So we'll be working with the Coast Guard. We'll have maritime captains at the helm of this vessel. And actually, recently, we just achieved our approval in principle from Bureau Veritas. So in the maritime space, you have these classification societies. They're third-party certification entities that actually many countries totally delegate the certification to. So if you get a, a classification, you are able to operate in that country. The first step of that certification process is called an approval in principle. It is exactly what it sounds like. They, they approve your rule set and they say, you know, in principle, this is good to go. And then we're going to follow you along your construction process and sign you off at the end. So we, we just achieved that approval in principle, which is super exciting because we have now for the first time with a maritime certification organization gotten this approval in principle for a machine that flies. Now it flies in ground effect, flies within a wingspan of the surface of the water, but that was a significant achievement. Uh, that sea gliders are, are maritime vessels with the first certification milestone already in the books. Is this the same question that went over Mark Cuban as an investor when he said the same thing similarly <laughs> and you gave this explanation and said, aha? Uh, working with Mark was uh, really interesting because we actually did it uh, almost entirely over email to start. And so I sort of checked into my battle station every night and it's like, all right, it's <laughs> it's time to negotiate with Mark on the deal here. So uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun, but it, he, he definitely got uh, deep into, into some of the aspects of this. Deep in, I want to get deeper in the aspects. What is the, is the wingspan? Is, are you flying at 50 feet, 10 feet? What are you flying above the water? Yeah, so uh, typical operating altitudes for the sea glider will be sort of 10 to 30 feet over the surface of the water. So um, actually, operationally, we expect to fly within about half a wingspan of the surface. Here we do get some aerodynamic efficiency from this ground effect. Again, you see birds flying low over the surface, taking advantage of this because of that. You're sort of flying on this cushion of air. So we'll be doing the same thing. 
Are you going to have built-in cameras so your passengers can take photos of all the beautiful marine life that they'll see going over the clear water? We're going to have massive windows. So the other advantage of not being a pressurized airplane is that you don't need these dinky little windows to see out of because <laughs> you don't need to you know, contain a pressure vessel. So you know, we think about this for tourism and from a passenger experience perspective, no, one, no one's ever ridden on anything like this. No one's gone 180 miles an hour within 30 feet of the surface of the water. And so we're going to give everyone nice big windows to look out of and really enjoy that experience. We've we've sort of simulated it in, in helicopters and seaplanes before, and it's just truly incredible. So I'm, I'm so excited for the world to be able to experience this on a sea glider too. On a traditional aircraft, do you have a pilot? On your on your aircraft with the glider, will it be a captain? Can I have to go through Coast Guard training? What does that process look like? You got it. It'll be a, a maritime certified captain. They will take a sea glider type rating, so sort of a conversion course that familiarizes themselves with all the systems on board the vehicle. But really what, what Regent has done is not only build this vehicle under maritime uh, certification for the vehicle, but we've said we have all this technology in sensors and digital flight control systems. So we're going to use that technology. We're, we're going to establish ourselves not just as a hardware company, but as a software company. And we're going to abstract away all the airplane stuff from the operator. So everything that has been dangerous about putting human pilots in control of seaplanes or wing and ground effect vehicle in the past, we're going to put under the digital flight control system. So the role the pitch, the altitude control, the rejection of gusts and waves, uh, the transitions between our floating, foiling, and flying modes, takeoff and landing, all of those controlled by the digital flight control system so that all that is left for the operator, for the captain, is boat controls, left, right, fast, and slow. And so we're actually already doing that today with our test vehicle. Uh, When we're on our hydrofoil, it is left, right, fast, and slow. There's a button to change between modes, and that is it. So drastically simplified operations, and this is why we can have maritime captains at the helm. It is basically just a really, really fast boat. You want a really good captain that knows the seas, then? Absolutely. No, so our our first captain will absolutely be, you know, experienced mariners. They have their master's rating and their commercial rating, and they've they've probably been at the helm of either high-speed ferries uh, or even hovercraft. You know, hovercraft are a great analogy for this. Hovercraft are technically flying on a cushion of air. They're also under maritime jurisdiction. They're also captained by mariners that have a a special hovercraft course. Wow, this is truly remarkable. Now, fast-forwarding the future... When do they become autonomous? It's a great question. So there's certainly lots of applicability for autonomy here. And actually, when you think of all the different land, sea, air, like where does autonomy happen first? It is totally on the water. Uh, So actually, a a lot of uh, people on our team that are working on sort of sensor systems and flight controls, again, come from that aviation background, uh, which is a very difficult problem. It's 3D detection of obstacles above the horizon, below the horizon. They're really small. They move really fast. And all of them converge to the same spot because they all need to land at the same airport. Really hard problem. We also have some experience in uh, autonomous car space where you are heavily reliant on computer vision. You're reading signs. You're, you're, you need to prepare for the dog running across the street. Really hard problem. Okay, now we think about on the water, you have big boats. They're really far away from each other. Everything's in two dimensions. The biggest boats actually have beacons on them as well that tell you where they are. So water is totally the place where autonomy is going to start, actually where it's already started, several companies building autonomy systems. So what Regent's doing is we're we're building our vehicle to be autonomy ready. 
So it is heavily automated, right? So that uh, all of the, the flight control aspects and the foil control aspects, the safety aspects are all controlled by this autonomy system, but our autonomy system is not making navigational decisions, right? We have a, a sensor platform that has radar and LIDAR and computer vision and these sensors out there, it's called AIS on the water. We fuse all of those sensors, we give it on a great display, but then it's the captains that see this display and have to move the controls, again, just boat controls, left and right, but they, they decide to go left and right along the route and then they tell the flight control system what to do. Now, the next step would be to take that really good situational awareness picture, make the decision with an algorithm, and then tell the flight control system what to do. So that's why we say sea gliders are autonomy ready. You know, it, it is not a large jump. All of the sort of mechanisms are there to connect our detection system to our flight control system. But we'd look to partner on that decision to introduce autonomy because for the members of the team that have autonomy backgrounds, that is a, a huge thing in and of itself. Even maritime autonomy, you need such a degree of safety with that system. So we're going to focus on the vehicle safety and physics and bringing this to market first. And then we'll look to partner on that on that other topic of making it autonomous. It's a savvy strategy. On, on one hand, you have, you have the passengers. Will you eventually go to, to cargo? So we saw what happened a few years ago in the Bahamas with, with the hurricane. They yes. needed supplies and we didn't have enough ships to get out there and, and help them. Will you be able to convert to cargo and, and, and take it to like a rescue mission like that? Or perhaps the islands just need everyday produce? Absolutely. And, and it's not even, you know, necessarily starting with people and, and then doing cargo. We can do all these at the same time. These are just different interior trim options. But the, the vehicle itself is really the same. And actually on our website, uh, on our Sea Glider page, you can see some of the different missions we can do and some of the different uh, interiors we can do as well and, and service these different missions. So we can put a bunch of chairs in it and we can fly sort of standard, you know, economy plus seating for an airline. Uh, we can put fewer seats in it, sort of double club edition, and we can be the, the VIP or, or the tourist transportation. We can take everything out of it, and then you can put boxes in it, and you can you know, take mail or cargo or whatever you want. You, know, you could put life support equipment in it, and all of a sudden now we have a medevac uh, capable system. You could put sensors in it, and you could be search and rescue and patrol missions for the Coast Guard. So really, we're, we're sort of building a bus and we can stick whatever we want in that bus and these capabilities of the vehicle of high speed, long range, low cost, runway independent uh, are really broadly applicable to a whole bunch of missions. Is this what's driving the interest in the Sea Glider? You have a $7 billion, I repeat, $7 billion backlog made up of 325 Sea gliders. Is that what's driving it? Absolutely. It's 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 really you know as you said earlier, it is like this fundamental shift. It's it's having the cost of an aircraft. Uh, it is an order of magnitude faster than a ferry. No one in history has been able to combine really the wave tolerance, maneuverability, and ride comfort of a hydrofoil system. There have been hydrofoil ferries that exist before, but those are very much on the water all the time, where you need that maneuverability in harbors. You need that wave tolerance so you can operate year-round in waves. So, you know, if I'm commuting on this vehicle, I know I'm going to get to work, even if, the even if the waves are high that day. But no one's been able to couple that with the high speed and long range of flight. No one has been able to merge that, that hydrofoil to wing transition and take off directly from a hydrofoil before. So this is the first vehicle that can do that. It is a 100% electric vehicle. And so we have this drastic reduction in operating cost 
that happens at the same time as you know the complete elimination of emissions. So this is really revolutionary across multiple verticals, revolutionary for multiple different markets. And that's why it's been really encouraging to see our order book grow so quickly. Well, your order book's growing. The, the trend around decarbonizing maritime is growing. It's frankly becoming a, a very hot trend. Is that putting wind into your sails to help you further accelerate the growth of your company? Absolutely. I, I love that we get wind in our sails building a maritime vehicle. You know, what, the best part is that, you know, building a sea glider is we get to use maritime puns and airplane puns. So, you know, I can say <laughs> electrification is really taking off too. And and, and this tailwind is sort of keeping us afloat. But uh, regardless, it, it absolutely is. We're seeing, you know, across transportation industries, the, the real need, the mandate to go green. And, and part of it is this, this goal of sustainability, but part of it too is, is really affecting the bottom line with respect to tax caps and bans and carbon credit systems that is actually affecting the core business model of some of these organizations are not necessarily high margin businesses. And so when you start eating into that limited margin with, with uh, taxes and fees, all of a sudden they could fall apart. So it is a necessity for all of these uh, industries to innovate, to, to go sustainable. And so we absolutely have seen uh, you know, greater traction because we are 100% green. We are 100% battery powered. How do you see the trend of decarbonizing maritime evolving overall for the whole industry, not just for what you're working on at Regent? I think we'll start to see more and more ports electrify. We'll start to see more and more ferries with batteries on board, maybe initially hybrid systems, but growing into battery systems. I think we'll start to see the proliferation of adjacent sustainable technologies like hydrogen propulsion systems. We're certainly excited about the prospect of hydrogen propulsion uh, in, in aviation and, and for us uh, with sea gliders, which is really, you know, and again, we're going on the boat puns here, but the, the, the rising tide lifts all ships, right? So as batteries start to proliferate and become you know, we get economies of scale out of them. And as that charging infrastructure, as we said, is already in many of the ports and in the cruise lines, but becomes uh, globally ubiquitous, it just makes it easier to buy and operate a sea glider because there's a higher probability that everything you need is there and the batteries are available and they're cheap. And uh, so that's really where we see this industry going. On the theme of rising tide lifts all ships, we see competitors follow you say, oh, I I want the wind in my sails as well. Yeah, I, I I think, you know, one of our goals is certainly to see Sea Glider in the dictionary and just have that have that become, you know, a, a part of the everyday parlance. And, I you know, I'm, I'm taking the Sea Glider out to the Hamptons this weekend. Right. So we, we absolutely want to see this become a ubiquitous mode of transportation that that people talk about. Right. Right. Along with cars and boats and planes and trains. And so I, I could certainly see others try to build sea gliders. We, we definitely have a very strong IP portfolio and a strong technical moat. So there, there are some things that would be difficult uh, about building a sea glider. But um, I think in general, we'll, we'll also start to see, you know, with, with Regent leading the way, this concept of maritime transportation and coastal transportation, there is actually an enormous market that people have maybe neglected for the past 50 years or so. And we'll start to see more and more technical innovation and new technologies come to the blue economy. 
Once you get in, in cocktail chatter, then you become a verb. I remember years ago living in, in New York City, Jessica Seinfeld held the, the whole issue with Uber. And every time I went to a party, oh, I took a cab. No, I Ubered here. Well, what's the Uber? And then it just, it led into this whole thing until Jessica had that whole, I think it was $738, $780 in the snowstorm. And then everyone's like, oh, it just became that big thing where Uber became the verb, at least in, in New York City. So you're well on your way there. In the future, what is the future of Regent? Yeah, so we'll continue to expand with our vehicles and and continue to get this truly global market share. You know, we talk about all these markets in island chains like Hawaii and New Zealand and Japan. Even we talk about massive coastal communities in the U.S., New York, and L.A. and Miami, but also globally, Barcelona and Athens, and you know, the whole North Sea and the Baltic Sea. So really, there is this massive market. There's billions of passengers worldwide that can ride these things. I mean, a, a global TAM for us, a, a total accessible market of around 25 billion for these technologies. So there is incredible room for us to grow. And we'll do so by building larger and larger sea gliders. So we'll start with this 12 seat vehicle, we'll grow into this 100 seat vehicle. And that really gives us the ability uh, to affect all of, of uh, you know, coastal regional mobility. And we can start replacing regional jets and turboprops and even single aisles. You know, Hawaiian Airlines is flying old Boeing 717s around the islands right now. Uh, so we can start to offset all these old gas guzzling, inefficient, loud aircraft and replace them with quiet, sustainable, zero emission, all electric sea gliders. Your sea gliders do great in the Greek Isles because if you don't book the plane early in advance on commercial, you're never going to get a flight in the summer. Good luck on the ferries. They're never on time. You're not going to get there. So <laughs> for people that go to the Greek Isles, we can't wait to have the recent sea gliders there. Bill, you talk a lot about the foil to wing transition. Have you done it and demonstrated it yet? So this is the key hard part, right? I mean, this is this is what separates sea gliders from any other vehicle in the past, from a wing and ground effect vehicle, from the acronoplons, from seaplanes, from anything. This this ability to go from a hydrofoil as a mode to be this smooth, comfortable, wave tolerant, maneuverable ride like a hydrofoil ferry, lift off on the wing, take off in the ground effect, and then get all the speed and efficiencies. And actually, we have. So 15 months ago, a sea glider was just an idea. It was a sketch on a napkin. And recently, we just announced that we have indeed done first flight. In fact, we've done many flights at this point, And we have convincingly proved that the, the thing that makes sea gliders work, this float foil fly operations and being able to transition from one to the next, do it safely, do it repeatably, do it completely automated by a digital flight control system so that all the operator has to do is press the takeoff button and the land button. Uh, we've proved that that, that that is indeed feasible. And that was the major proof point for our team, really a first in aviation and a huge step for maritime transportation. It's not science fiction, what you described. It's real. It is not science fiction. <laughs> you know, we, we are a team of engineers at the beginning. So we said, this is the hard part, that foil to wing transition. Let's go, let's go prove that first. And let's not do it with a, with a dinky remote control plane. Let's do it with a real piece of kit. So this thing is 400 pounds. It's 18 foot wingspan. 
We are using this distributed lift system, which lets us slow down our takeoff speed so that we can take off from the hydrofoil. That's been the hard part. So we're taking off at a speed of 38 knots or around 42 to 45 miles an hour, incredibly slow. We're lifting, five, uh, we're lifting 400 pounds of machine out of the water at about 40 miles an hour. And then we're accelerating in ground effect. And this ground effect is so efficient that we're flying again, 400 pounds at about 55 miles an hour on the power of a lawnmower, about six, seven horsepower. And so that just gives you a sense of how this machine is going to work at full scale, incredibly efficient. How? This is just pure engineering? <laughs> pure engineering. This is really this sort of, this is the benefit of ground effect. This is the benefit of being able to fly in this cushion of air. This is the benefit of being able to lift off the water and shed all of that drag from pushing things through the water. And the reason these vehicles have never caught on before is their wave tolerance. It's the same problem that seaplanes have. If the waves are too high, your takeoff is very bumpy. You know, at best it's uncomfortable and at worst you can't take off at all because literally the waves are too high for you to accelerate. And so if you watch some of the videos of our prototype foiling through the waters, getting off to takeoff speed, you'll see it just effortlessly gliding through the waves because we're propped up on these stilts on our hydrofoils. Ground effect, if you're thinking of ground effect, oh, I'm gonna put lights underneath my car and be Mr. Cool and it looks like it's floating, but you're actually <laughs> engineering something. How for a listener would you explain what ground effect is? Yeah, so there's sort of a, a pretty intuitive physical uh, interpretation of this. If, if you want to lift something up, you got to push against something, right? You got to get that force. So uh, a wing has high pressure air beneath it, low pressure air above it. So the high pressure air pushes up and the low pressure air sucks up and the, and the whole plane goes up. So that's lift. So you think about that high pressure air beneath the wing, an airplane at altitude, that high pressure air is just pushing on more air beneath it. And so if you put a plane in close proximity to a surface, and that can be a water surface, uh, it could be a land surface, now you're pushing that high pressure air against the ground. You're almost trapping that high pressure air underneath you. And so that's where you get these efficiencies. And so actually everyone has seen ground effect. It's what pelicans, as they're gliding over the surface of the water, they're using ground effect because it's efficient to fly. Uh, and also everyone's felt ground effect. It's that last second or two on a commercial airplane when you're coming in for a landing and maybe it's a really bumpy approach but right when you get to the runway all the bumps go away the engine spool down and for that you know second or two you're sort of coasting over the ground right before the wheels touch down that's when the plane's in ground effect it's coasting on this cushion of air so that all of the bumps in the atmosphere go away it's spooling down its engines because it's sort of slowing down and just gliding out in this pocket. And so in that regime, in ground effect on that pocket of air is where sea gliders will spend their whole lives. It's the wind beneath the wings. It's the wind beneath the wings. Oh, man, we got to use that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in there. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> you started the puns. I just kept it going. <laughs> Billy, and as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation where you shed a lot of awesome light on what Regent is doing, 
What would you like our listeners to take away with them today? Yeah, really that our team is full of industry experts that have combined centuries of experience on the team between both the the aviation space and the maritime space. So it's really the the safety and the rigor of engineering process that we're bringing to this. And we are we are backed by an engineering background. Myself, my co-founder, you know, educated as engineers. And so uh, when we say we're going to do something, we we do it. You know, we said we'd build a prototype. We built it. We're talking about range and cost targets. And there are many, there's sort of lots of fanfare in electric aviation and advanced air mobility. And there's, you know, very long ranges and high speeds and low costs thrown around. But really, uh, you know, Regent puts our money where our mouth is. We're, we're delivering on our targets. We're hitting our marks and we're doing so with this rigorous engineering and a process driven by safety. So as we get to market, these are going to be incredibly safe vehicles. They're going to be certified to airline standards of safety and we'll be connecting waterways soon. Regents engineering the future of flight because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is region all electric sea gliders. Billy, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we welcome representatives from Electrion, Next Energy, and Jacobs as they discuss their partnership to build a wireless in-road charging pilot in Detroit, Michigan, the first on a public road in the United States. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.